Hello everyone, this is Jackson. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talk with Isaac Celia about his roles in the Queen City Opera and the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. Let's be artful. This episode is brought to you by the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. We'll hear more about them at the end of the interview. Hello everyone and welcome back to this week's episode of the Artfuls podcast. A few quick things before we get into the interview with Isaac Celia, we wanted to make sure everyone knows about the upcoming events for the Artfuls podcast. The closest one to this date is August 1st. That is a Wednesday, and we are going to be at the No Theater of Cincinnati, where we are going to be presenting a live recording of the podcast right after the show Whisper House. Um, I have only heard really good things about it, and I cannot wait to go see it myself. Um, if you have not listened to the Artful Agenda this past week, um, we have partnered with the No Theater to be able to go to all of their main stage shows this season, and the first of which is Whisper House. We will actually be doing two things with the No Theater when it comes to their main stage season. Um, we will be seeing the show and recording an Artful Thought between the two people from the Artfuls that go to see the show, uh, which will be uh, released uh, a day or two after we go see the show, and the first Wednesday of the run, uh, we will be doing the live episode at the No Theater in the Play Underground, which should be a phenomenal experience. If you want to meet us, if you want to have your opinions about the show uh, aired to the world, as it were, um, please come and join us. We would love to hear your opinions about the show. Plus, Wednesday nights are either $5 or free. Um, you can reserve your tickets, get free tickets for $5, and it is a great opportunity to be able to see the shows at the No Theater. With that being said, let's jump right into the interview that I was able to have with Isaac Celia. Uh, so I am with Isaac Celia. He is the resident conductor for the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra and the founder of the Queen City Opera, which I just realized, which is wonderful. Um, so my first question is, um, you founded the Queen City Opera in 2012, correct? Spot on, yeah. Um what drove you to create an opera company in Cincinnati? Well, I was at CCM. I was doing a DMA in conducting. And as I was finishing up, I saw all these artists around me, singers, instrumentalists, directors, designers, who would graduate. And for many of them, nothing would happen immediately. And some of them would stick around Cincinnati and like get a job at Trader Joe's to get the health insurance or, or something like that. Sure. And Cincinnati as a city loves opera, loves the vocal arts, loves classical music, but there was no year-round opera company. So I figured if you have the demand for it and there's no year-round season because Cincinnati Opera is summer only. Yeah, they just do the summer. Yeah, and then you've got all these artists who are just sticking around looking for opportunities, and many of them have kind of challenges in getting to the next level because of the catch-22 of like, oh, you don't have professional experience. Why should we hire you for professional experience? Sure. So I figured, hey, this would kind of bridge that gap by giving them some kind of professional engagement, creating more year-round opera performances, and everybody wins. That's awesome. And so yeah. it's not it's not just about the audience's demand for opera, but it's also an active um, job opportunity for people totally. coming out of uh, their graduate or undergraduate. Mostly graduate, yeah. I mean, it's um, right there in the mission is like it's artist-centered, that it's to create engagements 
for the artists, mostly from CCM, but also from just like emerging artists around the country. Yeah. So the mission, uh, and I'm, you know this, you founded it, <laughs> but um, for the audience is to perform classical operas featuring emerging artists, the highest artistic standards, and a focus on contemporary issues. Exactly. Um, that last part. Yeah. Is something that Carlos and I talk about a lot. Awesome. Um, what was your reason for adding that to the mission, and what kind of issues can you bring up in classic operas? So this is actually something that we've grown into. I think just by by virtue of the fact that we are working with emerging artists who are all, you know, of a certain certain generation for the most part, and you kind of have a different demographic as a, compared to like the traditional opera going public and the traditional uh, you know like opera performers they were just thinking about this art form in a different way and the things that drive them to go into this art form are just a little bit different um i think this applies to classical music in general but like especially opera where you have a narrative and a story and characters and you have to make decisions about like who's on stage what do they represent how are they interacting um i mean full disclosure when it comes to repertoire i'm pretty conservative like you know I specialized in Mozart when I did my doctorate and like, you know, I love Puccini and Wagner and Weber and Tchaikovsky. Those are, those are my dudes. But uh, even so, I think that their works are particularly relevant um, even now because the issues that they were exploring are, are universal. I think that's kind of why this repertoire has lasted. So just to give you some examples, like when we did Mozart, Don Giovanni, um, you know, this is an opera about a rich dude who thinks he can do anything with women. And I mean, this is something that we we're seeing more and more in the news every day. Uh, So, and I think frequently when the, when the opera is performed, the angle is kind of like, he's so sexy and he really pushes the envelope and he's the hero. And he's like challenging the box that society has put him in. And, you know, these women secretly want it because he's so powerful and, and he's just like a force of nature. And I was really uncomfortable with, with that narrative. I'm like, I'm not presenting that opera with that story right now. Um, but when I started looking at the source material and like the original Tirso de Molina play, I realized like, I don't think that's the narrative. I think that might be a, a narrative that worked really well in like the late 20th century that like, you know, the sexy Don Giovanni. But I think the original material was like, he's borderline rapist. And that's why he gets dragged down to hell by the, the, the commendatore in the end. So we partnered. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, you know, putting, putting classical operas into contemporary context in the context of issues that are happening around this time. Totally. And especially, I mean, and I, I love what you just said where, it's a story that is constantly done, but it's not done in a way that is reasonable mm-hmm. to an extent. Um, and the story has to, the story is done in a certain way normally that would be, you know, the the sexy Don Giovanni. Yeah, exactly. And breaking that down to actually what is occurring rather than just the normal narrative that is actually taking place. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the way that we really highlighted that was we partnered with the education department of Planned Parenthood, and we did a series of workshops, some like weeks or months out from the performance and some day of, where we we had a health educator come and just like give a quick rundown of like, what is consent? What is sexual assault? And like, how do you differentiate the two? And then we just performed some scenes and like some of the audience members had like red and green like cards they could hold up to be like, yes, I am comfortable with this situation, proceed. Or like a red card to hold up like, no, I am not comfortable with this. And like there's the, 
the famous duet between Don Giovanni and Zerlina, where, you know, he's this rich dude and she's uh, a peasant on her wedding day. And he's like, oh, no, you should come with me. And many people are like, oh, it's a beautiful seduction scene. And kind of putting it in the context of, of consent and just like having the discussion of like, can there be consent when you have that much of a, of a power differential? And you just really have to ask, like, what's going on in this scene? If she initially is like, no, no, I'm not interested. And then maybe he has like a little bit of a threat of violence and a little bit. He talks about like how he could change her life. And, you know, she acquiesces. But what is that? Is that consent or is that just being pressured into the situation? That's really interesting. Do you think that the tradition of opera is setting back those contemporary conversations? Do you think that the people that are still very adamant about mm. this is what the opera is, is holding mm. it back? Interesting question. Um, well, I think, I think when you have masterpieces like that that have endured the test of time, it's probably because there's something in it that, that resonates with, with human nature. And I mean, you can say the same thing about Shakespeare. And I think that these questions are going to come up when you present these works in, in any generation. And every generation is going to see it through a, a different lens. So, I mean, it's hard to say like, what it means by like, holding it back. I mean, it's great sure. that the work is still being performed. I think that these are important works that, that have legs and probably will be around hundreds of years from now. And I think it's just there's an onus on us as presenters to really just ask the question of like, how does this fit into to society? Whose, whose side are we taking in this narrative when we present it? Because there are directorial questions you, that you have to answer in any work. And you just have to really be careful about like, what questions am I asking? What is, what is good and what is evil in this world I'm creating? Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and so you said you uh, partnered with Planned Parenthood mm. for one of them. Yeah. And that was actually going to be one of my next questions. Sure, um, sure. So when you deal with a major issue, how do you how do you personally try to put those shows into a historical context or into modern context? And do you think that educating the audience before they see it is required before they see the show? Hmm, really good question. Um, I think ideally, if the the core of the work is compelling enough. You shouldn't have to have to like educate people beforehand. It should be so clear what you're doing, just in the art. Um, and I think the art also extends to like the the promotional materials, like how you present the organization. Sure. You know what kind of aesthetic you go for in in the materials you put out there, and like how you represent yourself on online. I think ideally it should be clear enough that people can see it and be like, "Wow, you know that looks like they're asking really interesting questions." I just want to go see the work. And hopefully it should be apparent enough in the context of the work that you shouldn't have to have like a, you know, a director's talk beforehand. Yeah. I mean, so those can be amazing. There are people who want to come beforehand and to learn more about it. It can enrich the experience. Um, but I'd hope that you shouldn't have to. Sure. And so when you did the Planned Parenthood um, partnership, mm -hmm. uh, did you feel like that had a positive response on the performance in general? Do you think that that put it into more context for you? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it did. Um, I think that for the artists themselves, it was, it was definitely like a really, really inspiring experience. Sure. That, uh, you know, these are definitely issues that they were thinking about and that they could kind of discuss those and work those out in the context of the work, in the rehearsal process. Uh, for the audience also, I remember we did one of these uh, these pre-performance presentations here in, in Price Hill at the My Cincinnati Firehouse. And the people who showed up for it were definitely not your traditional opera-going crowd. 
and sure. they you know they they were totally into this discussion about like you know relationship dynamics and then we we're like okay now we're gonna do some opera for you and they were like okay but i these were generally not people who would have showed up if we're just been like here we are we're doing some mozart but i think because they had that entry point of like now i'm watching this and I'm going to be paying attention to like whether Celina looks like she's into it at the beginning, you know, and how Don Giovanni's singing may or may not influence her and whether he's pressuring her or seducing her. It kind of gave them the tools to kind of parse opera in a way that demystified what can sometimes be like, oh, my God, there's this elitist, you know, European three century old art form in a foreign language. What, why am I watching this? Yeah, it's the contemporary context. You gave yes. them you gave them a point of entry into opera. Exactly. That's wonderful. I yeah. like that. Um, so moving a little bit away from mm -hmm. opera, but not sure. too far, um, you have both conducted opera performances and symphonies. Sure. Sure. Um, sure. this is my great segue. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not great, but I mean, I'm going to try. Um, so what are the biggest differences between conducting an opera versus a symphony? You know, I know the ensemble is different, but what's something that we probably wouldn't know is a big difference? So I think I think opera in many ways is way harder. Okay. Because you kind of have your hands tied behind your back that like you've got a bunch of memorized soloists who are running around, you know, on stage and like, you know, there's acoustic issues and like, you know, you have to follow them and you have to communicate exactly what they're doing to the orchestra. Whereas like with the symphony, you're focusing just on on the orchestra, even if it's the same exact size symphonic ensemble you know doing like a mozart opera versus a mozart symphony or you know sure. doing like wagner opera versus like you know an orchestral prelude in a concert setting very very different kind of experience when you're dealing with just symphony i mean as a presenter i mean it's a different set of challenges because you don't have the same extra musical content like many times sure. it's just sound and how do you how do you make that compelling uh, how do you find a narrative? Sometimes that does lend itself more to to requiring the kind of director's pre-talk of like, why are we doing this pieces? You know, like, yeah. So, um, but just in terms of the nuts and the bolts, it's almost like luxurious to be able to just do symphony where it can be like, hey, we're <laughs> just gonna focus on like you know the sound concept here, and you know you don't have to worry about like accompanying. It's in many ways it's easier. Like I think that the traditional career path for conductors was like you did opera first because like there you really learn your chops. Yeah. And then once you have that, conducting a symphony is easy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Is there one difficult thing about conducting a symphony versus an opera? Well, I think the the flip side of that coin is that when it's just sound, you have to make a lot more decisions about you have to kind of create the narrative in the music. So you really have to, it's all on you, you know, to, to create the interest, you know, there's no set, there's no plot. So like, you know, if you're in the middle of like a 20 minute slow movement, you got to find the the tension and, and just communicate it purely through music. And that means just making a lot of, uh, you know, musical decisions. Yeah. And so that was my segue. Sure. So now we're going to get to um, the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, where you are the resident conductor. Resident conductor. So what does that entail? So uh, Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra recently moved to a, a festival model where they're, they're yeah. performing in August. And uh, I'm just here, like, because I live in Cincinnati, I'm here year-round. If they have any other events, you know, we do some collaborations with the My Cincinnati Youth Orchestra as well, so I, I conduct those. And if they have some some smaller events or uh, during the year, I'm just there to kind of represent the organization. Um kind of tying it to what we were talking about before about like, you know, how do we make this, this like 
art form that has centuries of history relevant now. I think the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra has a different approach, which is very much to focus on the concert format and and what it means to be an orchestra in terms yeah. of the repertoire you're you're presenting. I mean, um, the the repertoire that they present is just so imaginative and so varied. Like you know, you show up for an orchestra in quotes concert and that might mean like you know uh something that has like a multimedia component with like a puppet show and then there's like a, a bagpipe soloist and it's definitely not what you assume when you think like orchestra yeah yeah um and so i'm gonna say the mission for this one too sure um because i'm fascinated with missions Important. um yeah. so the cs cco is uh, to create intimate experiences that connect the musically curious. And so for during the school year, let's say, um, you have the opportunity to conduct a lot of those. How do how does the CCO accomplish that mission of the music curiosity around those performances? I know that you said that there's a lot of collaboration. Um, there's a lot of differences in repertoire. Mm. So what are some of the examples of those that you've been able to do yourself? So some of them I haven't done personally, partly because of, of kind of their curatorial model, which is really cool in that many of the smaller events are actually curated by the musicians. So I've kind oh, of, cool. I've kind of helped with like a, with like the logistics of those, you know, but um, many times like the artistic decision about like what repertoire are we going to put on this like chamber music concert and where's it going to be? And is there going to be like some kind of like food tie in where we present like French music alongside like, you know, French light bites to kind of like explore that, that how cuisine and music interact. A lot of that is curated by the musicians themselves, which I think it's, that's, it's that kind of um, touching on the curiosity. It's like, it's treating the musicians, not just as, as like, labor versus management and like you show up and you play what you're told, but much more as like artists who are involved in the, the creative process from start to finish. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and that's a lot, that's much different than other organizations and other models of, you know, showing up and sure. just playing exactly. what you need to play. Exactly. Okay. So when it comes to models that are more uh, performer driven yeah, or when it comes to vast uh, differences in repertoire in the same concert, yeah, do you have any really good examples of, just something really far out there that it's like one piece is way totally different than the other. Well, I remember with the chamber orchestra last summer, they did, they did a piece, um, by David Bowie on the same concert as some like Baroque harpsichord music. And it, it really, That's a couple really centuries apart. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was a pretty, pretty widespread. Um, and I, as far as I know, data-wise, this has been tested by at least one organization, um, the California Symphony, that did some just some crunching of the numbers of their audience, and they found that the traditional classical music model of like the so-called silos, where you have like your masterwork series and your pop series and your your family series, it kind of really breaks down and separates your audience. Where there are a lot of people who would be more than happy to like show up and hear a symphony by a classical composer. And, you know, a pop's work and, you know, a rock arrangement on the same concert. Sure. Um, so I think <laughs> we really should be just questioning, like, the whole, like, siloed approach that, like, you have your sacred masterworks and you have your pops and they, they must never touch. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I like that idea. Um, so you, you mentioned the festival for the CCO. Yeah. 
And it's every summer the CCO yeah. uh, puts together the series of concerts that is their summer music uh, festival. Um, why is this particular festival unique? I mean, in Cincinnati, there isn't uh, there isn't that much else going on in in August. So I think that's why they picked that particular time period. That kind of like you know people get really excited about like the opera, and then like the opera ends at like end of July, and then like before things really kick into high gear again with with the 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 like September when CCM goes back into action and like the symphony starts up again, you've got, you've got the chamber orchestra to kind of like explore some, some other things. And I think it's definitely unique in just the scope of different kinds of programs. Like we were talking before about how like they have their main stage series of, of like, which combines centuries of repertoire in one program. And then you have like the, the musician curated smaller series events. They have the, the little afternoon music and then they also have the chamber crawls, and a lot of these take them to to different venues. Like you have chamber music concerts in bars, in restaurants, in which is of, not normally not normally what happens. Yeah, it, I for mean, most music in Cincinnati, which is which is really interesting. It you know it it moves everyone around and makes things a little bit more accessible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the the challenges that I remember we faced when we were first starting this up was just like figuring out like the acoustics for like this bar of like, okay, we have this, this is like a non-traditional kind of space. It's like a long rectangle and like, where are people going to sit? Like, where's, you know, can they hear it if we put the, the orchestra, the, the ensemble at one end of the hall? Those kind of questions, which are, you know, not what you're used to, to asking when you're, you know, producing. Yeah, you're not normally worried about the acoustics when you're in a concert hall because it's, you know, built for that. Exactly, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. And so um, what concert are you looking forward to most the summer. So there's one concert the summer on the CCO main stage series called The Voyage of the Red Violin. And that's Saturday, August 18th, 7.30 at uh, SCPA. And this really has so much in it. It's a, it's a masterfully constructed program with just so much variety uh, that it focuses on the film The Red Violin. Okay, cool. So it, it has the, the Curliano suite from The Red Violin, which is a, a, a premiere for the organization. And it's going to feature the so-called red violin, like the actual instrument that's in the movie. Like Whoa, the, wait, really? Yeah, yeah. It's called the, um, the so-called like Mendelssohn Strad. And that's like what the, the film was about. And like, wow. Yeah, they're going to have the actual instrument here. That's cool. And like repertoire-wise, so they have that. Then they're also doing like a Chen Yi suite with some Chinese folk-inspired music. They're doing some, some Tan Dun, like with um, dialogue with Paul Clay. Then also on the same program, there's Bach and Mozart. Wow. So it's, it's just like really breaks down the barriers of like different kinds of repertoire all in the same program. It's got like a popular appeal with like, you know, something that more people are, are familiar with from classical music in like popular culture and also has like Mozart and Bach. And it also has a collaboration with SCPA because there was a concerto competition where they, they picked out one student who's actually going to be playing in the, the Bach double concerto. That's fantastic. Yeah. Really cool program. So, interesting space, great music, and the collaboration with SCPA, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I always applaud organizations that will actively seek out students oh, yeah. to be able to perform with them or just get them in the door totally. and make it accessible for them. Totally. Um, so, I applaud you, CCO. Um, because that's that, that really is fantastic. And um, make sure to go to that because I definitely I will try to get tickets to that. 
Um, I don't know if it's sold out yet or not. <laughs> it's probably getting close. I mean, they're selling really well. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, that is all the questions I have. Fantastic. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. One more time, thank you so much, Isaac, for being able to talk with me. I know we actually cut off the interview, and we ended up talking for another half hour about different topics about the arts. So I guarantee that will not be the only time you're on the podcast. We will definitely have more conversations in the future. Um, And also a big thank you to the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. They helped set up this interview. Uh, They sent me all of their information for their summer festival, and it really does look like a wonderful musical opportunity that you should take advantage of. As we were able to mention in the podcast, their three types of concerts offer something for everybody. Their repertoire ranges from Mozart and Beethoven to Gershwin and Freddie Mercury this year. Uh, The Chamber Experience lets the listener be really close to the music and feel much more intimate than you normally would at a normal concert. This is not just spearheaded by Isaac, but also Eckhart Proy, who is really just a very engaging musical and intelligent conductor. Uh, The CCO has been very fortunate to have him as their music director. His programming at his time at the CCO has been creative and exciting, and they really cannot wait to be able to show off his creative spirit this summer as well. Um, And also, I will say that the prices are extremely reasonable. Uh, To hear the orchestra and guest artists of this caliber for $30, you know if you ever listen to the agenda and on these episodes as well that we are always looking for deals to be able to go see great art. And for $30, you really can see incredible, diverse music um, at the CCO this summer. So if you are interested in being able to see some of these concerts, I know some of them are already sold out. Some of them still have a lot of availability, but really there is something for everyone. So if you are interested, I will put a link in the description to be able to find the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra's website. And also because we talked about it at length, I will also be including the website to the Queen City Opera. I highly suggest you check out both. And that is about it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to go comment, like, and share our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artfuls Podcast. And if you have comments, questions, or concerns, well, you can email us at artfulspodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to find the Facebook event for the Artfuls live at the No Theater on August 1st. And you never know, maybe I'll pull you up on stage and we can talk about the arts in Cincinnati. That is about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been Jackson. And remember, have an artful day.